0: Of course, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn with me as we start our journey this morning, of course, in the book of Colossians, as we are making our way through the book of Colossians and are uh, almost to the end of it and uh, moving on to what is next. But We are have been in uh, Colossians 3 in this section, uh, most specifically starting in verse 18 a few weeks ago. Uh, of course, we had Easter in the midst of this, uh, but started in this um, What many of your Bibles will probably have as a section, rules for Christian households. Uh, But as Paul was giving instructions, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, to Christian households. And we know uh, not to go back through all of Colossians by any stretch. Uh, because you've been with us, but if you have not been with us, Colossians is kind of in two sections. Uh, The first uh, section, the first couple chapters being laying a theology and a framework for the why of believers, uh, as Paul does in all of his letters, and then the second half in chapter 3 and chapter 4, more of the practice and the living out of that faith and what that looks like for believers as he started started with putting on the new self and taking off the old self, and so part of that Uh, are these relationships in the home. And so that's where we've been these past several weeks uh, of looking at these relationships in the home. And so uh, in these relationships in the home, we started with wives and husbands. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, And then with children and their parents. Children, obey your parents and everything. And fathers, do not provoke your children. So those are the two relationships that we've looked at uh, thus far and now this morning, we look at this last relationship that Paul addresses in the home, and that's the relationship between the servant and the master, or the bondservant and the master, or the slave and the master, depending on your translation. So this, um, this text that we uh, come to is uh, starting in verse 22. It will actually take us down into the first uh, verse of chapter 4. Uh, as we know, the uh, verses and chapters are not necessarily inspired Uh, They typically line up pretty well, but this is one, as we'll see, uh, that we need to kind of dip into chapter 4, and then we'll continue on in uh, next week. So let's read our text this morning, uh, Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Paul says this, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray for our time this morning. Lord, we do thank you for our time this morning uh, in your word, Lord. Thank you for our time in these relationships in the home. And uh, Lord, as we turn our attention now to, to bond servants and masters, Lord, to help us to understand what your word says and ultimately how that applies to our lives today and how we can submit to you our ultimate authority, Lord as we are your servants, as we are your slaves in Christ. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, a little bit of context before we really begin on, uh, unpacking uh, the, the text this morning. Let's first look at the very first word of our text. In verse 22, it says, bond servants. He addresses bond servants. Now, when we go back to verse 18 and verse 19 and 20 and 21, we clearly understand those particular uh, positions, those stations in life, if you will. we know what a wife is, we know what a husband is. Well, we know in this room what a wife and what a husband is. Uh, there is confusion today, but we know what a wife is and what a husband is. We know who children are and who fathers, and we don 't have a misunderstanding. those roles are clear in life those The language of this text is clear but we, we may have some uh, some uncertainty, maybe even why this is in here in God's Word, and we're going to unpack this this morning, uh, but this this word, bondservant, uh, what is it, what does it mean exactly, how do we translate it, and so just a little bit of the context of bondservant. And as I said earlier, it can be most specifically translated bondservant or servant or slave, uh, it, this, particularly in Colossians 3, verse 22, comes from the word doulos, the Greek word doulos, D-U-L-O-S, uh, which means slave. And uh, there is in, in recent years, there's been a lot of study over this particular word uh, for different context in, in God's word that we won't get into this morning. But for our, for our time this morning, uh, it is th- those three things, bondservant, servants, and slave. Most Bible trans, most Bibles translate Colossians three twenty two as bond servants. Believe it's the Holman Christian Standard will translate it as slave, and yours may have servant or something else. This this term is used quite often in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the equivalent uh, is used. Some 1,200 times, 799 I believe as a noun, and some 300 and some odd times as a verb. So just 1,100 and something times in the Old Testament, and 127 times in the New Testament. I am just give you these numbers so that you can have numbers and be a numbers guy like me. I say it to say the Bible speaks a lot of the topic of servants. It is a theme in Scripture. The Bible has a lot to say about servants and servanthood, and so there's a lot to be said in the Bible about being a servant. It is a message and theme of Scripture, and one that we're not even going to begin to unpack this morning. But it is an important, word, an important term. Um, and so, a little historical context of especially as to why Paul is addressing, uh, why Paul is addressing. Servants in this text, especially when it comes to household relationships uh, the, the the slavery was alive and well in Rome, just to put it plainly to put it very plainly uh, there were depends on who you read and what historian you read obviously we 're in two thousand and twenty three and it gets harder and harder to have great clarity on events that happened in two thousand uh, or more years ago, uh, but depending on who you read, there is at least 12 million slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, some would say maybe even up to 60 million uh, slaves in the Roman Empire that there was as vast as about 80 million people. And so you can imagine the 60 million slaves, potentially 80 million people in the Roman Empire, there's a very high percentage of uh, the population that were slaves. At minimum, some would say at least twenty percent of the population were uh, servants and bond servants and different forms of servants. There were two different main, there were two main types of slaves uh, those that were to be found in the country uh, they were doing tasks working in the farm or working in the mines. That was typically the term that due was more uh, meant for the more hard working the the servants who had uh, had had, we'll just say, more bitter conditions, if you will. They had a more difficult life, those servants who worked not necessarily in the city. And then you had the servants who worked in the city, who worked in the households. They were household servants, and there was a different word for them. Uh, Often that we translate it, bondservant. As we'll see this morning, we can also translate doulos as bondservant. And so you have these two different types of servants, those who worked in the country, those who worked in the city, those who didn't work in the household, and those who did work in the household. Those who worked in the household, by and large, they had it much easier than those who didn't. They lived either with the family or very close to the family. They even dressed like those who were freed. Uh, If you were walking down the street, it was almost impossible at times to know who was a free Roman citizen and who was not just based on their dress. The jobs they had, many of them had very respectable jobs. They were teachers, uh, they were cooks, they were doctors, they did. Some would even say that the Roman citizens uh, did nothing. Uh, they had all of the work, a 100% of the work that had to be done, whether it was menial in task or whether it was great in profession and noble in profession, was done by some sort of servant. Uh, by the first century, the majority of slaves, they were not captured slaves. They were actually born into slavery. So these were not uh, citizens of other countries. These were men and women uh, who were born into their station of life. This is all they knew was to be a servant of uh, the Roman Empire. And like I said, Romans, Rome, Roman citizen, Roman Rome citizens or Romans that depended heavily on these servants. Some would say that all the work was done by them, which led Romans to a life of leisure, luxury, and laziness. It's the American dream, isn't it? The Romans just got there first. So, with that background of uh, servants, just want to kind of have a, uh, some context to see who we're talking about. Let us look at our text. So Paul says, bond servants, servants, slaves, obey in everything. Hold up. That's his word to servants. Servants, obey in everything. Surely he means Jesus, right? Obey in everything, Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Um, no, he says, bond servants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. There was no doubt what who Paul was speaking about here. When he says, servants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly ma- masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. So, three things I want us to catch this morning, three observations, if you will. The first is this that gospel centered servants are to sincerely obey their earthly masters. Gospel centered servants are to sincerely obey their earthly ma- masters. Now these that Paul is addressing, they are in the church. These are believers. These are those who have given their life to Christ, who have surrendered their life to Christ, who desire to follow Christ. So these are bond servants, not just of master, of earthly masters, but of a heavenly master. Their ultimate master is Jesus. And he is telling these gospel-centered servants, these Christian servants, to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So gospel-centered servants are to sincerely obey their earthly masters. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now we know that believers' first allegiance are to the Lord. And that is something we've talked about at these other relationships and the relationships between wives and husbands, between children and and their parents, that ultimately our first and primary allegiance is always to the Lord. Simply put, submission stops when sin starts. That if there's ever a place where someone has authority over us, whether it's a parent, whether uh, whether it's a husband, whether it's a, a boss, whether it's a master in this case, we know it's always it, our primary allegiance is to our Lord. It is to God's word. It is to walking and being faithful to him and not to man. Submission stops whenever sin starts. and so. But this is not the case. This is not about sinful obedience. He's telling the bond servants, obey in everything. It's so not that everything is not inclusive of sinful things, but in everything that is not sinful, those who are your earthly masters. Because these believers know this. They know their primary call, their aim is to walk with the Lord. Submission stops when sin starts. Now, it's fairly easy to obey good masters. I mean, this is you know, likely common sense, right? Likely, this is not the reason that Paul is writing so many words, these servants. Now, if you've kind of looked at this passage, you say, hey, there's a verse to wives and husbands, and a, a, a verse for wives to husbands, a, a verse from husbands uh, to their wives, a verse from children to their, uh, their parents, a verse from fathers to their children. We'll come on down to ver- chapter 4, verse 1, there's a verse from masters to their servants. And then you got this whole section, all of these words, so many words, right? About These bondservants specifically since you asked me about the numbers. I'm glad to share them with you uh, There are 11 words depending on your translation, translations 11 words in those first three categories from wives husbands and children There are 10 words to fathers and 16 to masters There are 75 English translated words in this commission and this command to Servants, so there is a lot to be said that Paul has here inspired by the Holy Spirit to servants gospel-centered servants are to sincerely obey their earthly masters. Many have suggested that the bondservants and Colossae here uh, were running amok to a degree. They were having struggle, they were struggling with obeying their earthly masters. They were coming to know Christ, they were following him, and now they were struggling, obeying their pagan masters. A lot of the masters they had, a lot of their the 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 people who were uh, who had control over them, who had literally ownership over them, were pagans. They were not believers, and they were struggling following them. And so many would say that the, those in Colossae, and, and not just Colossae, but the church in general, had these this struggle. And we see in uh, the church of Ephesus, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we see a similar um, we see a similar charge to the bond servants. But it's speculative. But it is very possible, and it's highly likely. But regardless, it is safe to say that more was needed to be said about obeying a difficult master. Many of us likely don't need encouragement on how to obey and be submissive to a good master or a good boss, or a good uh, leader in our life. But let's turn to 2 Peter, if you will, just to get uh, get Peter's take on this. Second or First Peter, chapter two, verse eighteen. Peter gives some very clear words on how to submit. How to gladly obey, how to sincerely obey when the authority, when the master is not pleasant. What if the master is mean, cruel, or unjust? And in First Peter 2.18, Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He gets like right to the point, right? He said, what credit is if you do bad and you get in trouble? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now imagine you're a bondservant in the first century, and like you're listening to Peter, and you're listening to Paul, and you're you've come to know Christ, and this is this is the command that, that if I suffer for doing good, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. How can this be? For to this you have been called. Because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So we see in Peter that it's not just about surviving a mean master or a bad boss. Peter steps it up. We are called to endure suffering for doing good, because that's what Christ did. That's what Christ endured. And we'll come back to a little more on this in a moment. But gospel-centered servants are to sincerely obey their earthly masters, not because of the good that's inside of them, but because of the model that we have in Christ to suffer even whenever those around us treat us unjustly. It says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not just by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Because you can just imagine the servants, okay, I can get this. I can fake it, Right. I can, just, I can go through the motions. I can do my job. I can get to the end of the day. I can get back to, to the place that I sleep. And I, can just, I can just survive as long as I need to. But no, he says not, not with any kind of false pretense, but with sincerity. Not out of any kind of false way, but with sincerity. We are called to sincerely obey your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, Paul says. Not as people pleasers. Now we're going to start getting personal, right? People pleasers. No no show of hands, but haven't even struggled with that disease, right? Right, to please others. And Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He addresses any potential root of fleshly service. The service that's done so that others can see you. Because the bond service service says, okay, well, if I'm committed to serving, if I'm committed to being faithfully obedient in everything, I want people to see who's serving. But he says, no, not by way of eye service, not by way of of any kind of feigning, not by way of, of pleasing others. This cannot be sourced at your flesh. This has to be deeply inside of you because you, as we're going to see in just a moment, because your motivation is not you. Your motivation is not your master. We are not here to please people. Gospel-centered servants do not submit to their masters because they are people-pleasers, but because they are God-pleasers, because they desire to please Christ. Our ambition, our aim is to please the Lord. Our aim is to please Jesus. 2 Corinthians five nine says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him who is Jesus. That is our aim. That is our aim in this life. Specifically as we talk about even this aspect of work here in service. What is our aim? It is to please Jesus. Whether we are at home or Away. So it's this comparison, serving simply by way of eye service versus serving with sincerity of heart. Gospel-centered servants are to sincerely obey their masters. Secondly is this, gospel-centered servants are to clearly understand who they are serving gospel-centered servants are to clearly understand who they are serving. Paul continues, we kind of pick up some of verse 22 and bring it to verse 23 when he says, it's not just that you are to uh, obey in everything and you obey your earthly ma- uh, masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And he continues, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Could it be more plain to the servant who's sitting there of who they are serving? You're not serving your master. You're not serving that household that you're going back to when you leave this congregation. You are serving Jesus. So whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord. And we could camp out right here for another week or two and spend a great deal of time on this topic of work. And we'll hopefully unpack some of this this week in community groups as we kind of apply this to our life. But our main goal this morning is not application, but it's to understand what the text says so that we can then apply it to our life. But he is, he is saying that whatever it is that you do, you do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving Jesus. So if we can just pick this one passage apart for a moment. I love this word heartily. It is a pretty neat word in the Greek it's actually two words. It is ek psyche, which means from the soul. From the soul. He says so, whatever you do when you're at work, when you're serving, now remember this for some of these folks who's maybe kind of easier household servant and they may have had a, an okay life for some of these bond servants they may have been in their congregation. They may have been relegated to the fields and to the mines and had some very difficult uh, context in their life. They may have been, had some very difficult tasks. And what he's, what he's telling them here is that you, how you are to serve is hardly with your soul, from your soul. How can you do that in this pagan Roman household? How can you do that in these minds that you have no benefit from, that you're just a slave out in the fields farming for people that you have struggled even loving, much less not hating? So serve from your very soul. You could read the verse like this. Whatever kind of work you do, put your soul into it. You are working for God and not for man. And not only are you not working for man, but you're not working for money, for fame, for recognition or retirement. You are working solely for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ, Paul says. And it says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So, well, what's our inheritance? What do we get? Can I turn to the verse that gives me all the things I'm going to get in heaven? Let me tell you what you get in heaven. Can I tell you what you get in heaven? Look at me, church, real closely. Here's what you get in heaven. You get Jesus. Is there anything else that you need? What size house do I get? What streets is it on? Are the roads literally made of gold? Like, what does it look like? What's eternity look like? What's all these details of my eternity? And we get so bogged down, right? And we start reading books and we want to know if someone actually died and went to heaven. The answer is no, they didn't, okay? There's one person who died and came back. His name's Jesus. But what we need to know is that we get Jesus. He is the treasure. He is our inheritance. We get Christ. So as we serve, gospel-centered servants are to clearly understand who we are serving because god has created us to work work is good maybe some of us need to hear that i thought work was bad i won't belabor this story i've told i've said it before but just give you the highlights uh, uh, there was a prideful moment in me. I'll, I'll admit that. I was on a job site a few years ago with a, I won't call any uh, carriers or any details. I'll protect the the guilty, but I was on a job site with an adjuster and he tries putting the, uh, he tries quoting the Bible to me. And of course, these guys don't know, you know, that I've been a pastor for, you know, 20, 20 something years and know God, and for the, you know, study God's word and love God's word and treasure God's word and that, you know, all these things. And so, uh, so he starts quoting. Uh, he, he tries to start teaching me the Bible, and of course he does, which has been great. I would love to engage. I would love to say, "Hey, let's just forget work for a second. Let's just talk about God's word." But he misquotes it, and he misunderstands it, and he wants to tell me. He says, "John, work is a curse." I was like, mm, "No, work's not a curse. The toil in our work is a curse, but work is a good thing. Work is a blessing from the Lord. He has called us to work. Work is a good thing from the Lord. He has called us to do it. He has created us." To work, Because guess who else worked for six days? God worked for six days and rested on the seventh day. So when we understand who we, tr- who we are truly serving, who we are working for, it changes how we work. You can't just show up to work, whether it's a workplace or school, whether it's waking up for the day ahead, whatever your station of life is. We can't show up to work with joy unless you understand who you are working for. If you are miserable throughout your day, it's likely because you have forgotten or don't know who you are working for. If you want to restore the joy of your workplace, it's not by a raise. It is by remembering who you work for, by remembering who you serve. That is the hope that these servants, that is the hope that these slaves had. He didn't give them the hope of freedom from a year from now or ten years from now. Or here's the, the plan. He just said, remember who you are serving. You are serving Jesus. From Him, we will receive our inheritance. From Him, we will receive our well done. And from Him, we will be received. There is no greater master than to serve, to serve than God. Let us serve him with our very soul, with joy and with gladness. Gospel-centered servants are to clearly understand who they are serving. And then lastly, gospel-centered leaders are to justly and fairly consider others. Gospel-centered leaders are to justly and fairly consider others. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul's last command to Christian households in this section here is to those who are masters of servants. The entire slave experience was based on their master. Their whole experience. If the master was kind, gracious, and generous, the slave would have a very accommodating life. However, if the master was cruel and unjust, the slave would have a miserable and often shortened life as they could end that life at their whim. Whether the slave could marry or have children, who even owned those children, was up to the capriciousness of the master. Whether the slave lived in constant fear or not was up to the master. All of these things and so much more was completely dependent upon the master. And so here's Paul addressing these masters. He is calling Christians who own servants to treat them justly and fairly. He is calling them to be kind and gracious. As believers, the Colossians would have been being taught the words of Christ. They would have known the great, not only the great commission that we talked about a couple of weeks ago at Easter, but they would have known the Great Commandment, simply put, to love God and love people. They would have known that people are created in the image of God, that we are image-bearers of the Lord. And so as they worked through this as masters, they would have known that people are. Made not just by the Lord, but in His image. To love God and to love people is at the heart and the command of all of God's people. To be all things that they have experienced from their Master, King, and Lord is what Paul says. As masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So it says you are masters here on earth, but as believers, as gospel-centered masters, You have a master in heaven. You have true authority in heaven. And how has he treated you? Romans 2.4 comes to mind. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So treat these justly, fairly, with kindness. We'll see another Way to treat these in just a moment. But another interesting observation from our text here is that in this congregation at Colossae was made up of bondservants and masters. As he is writing this letter to Colossae, as he writes the letter to Ephesus, it's clear in the growing church that these folks are gathering together to worship. That bondservants are coming together, that masters are coming together, and it's a reminder that the gospel tears down these walls. It's a reminder of what we see constantly throughout Paul's letters, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, in Christ, in Him, are all in all. You can go to Colossians three eleven. It says here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, however you want to pronounce that, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The gospel tears down these walls between believers. It tears them down. It says we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can imagine how difficult that was in first century Rome. And so it says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. But, There was not a call to tear down this system. We do not see that in the New Testament. As we'll see in just a moment in 1 Corinthians. It says, Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly. And so, one last observation from our text this morning this is not what you would logically expect. For the command to the masters to be. Just like it's not the logical expectation uh, for the command to the bondservants, you'd expect him to say something different, but instead he says, Press into your service. Instead he says, Obey them in everything, but do so with joy and gladness because you're ultimately serving the Lord. And it's not what you'd expect for him to say to the masters, it's not what you'd expect him to say to the owners of these bondservants, the owners of these slaves. You would think you would say masters free your servants masters let's end this system of slavery but it's not what he says in colossians it's not what it says in ephesians it's not what it says in philemon it's not what it says anywhere in the new testament even if we don't like that it's not what it says and so how can it be how does the bible address the issue of slavery in a couple of ways go with me to first corinthians chapter 7 First of all, it speaks to opportunity for the servant. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse uh, 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And we could, that's a great passage. And they can mean so many things to so many people. But let, let us lead, let us live the life that God has called us to live Live whenever we were saved. If it's not in sin, right? If we're not living in sin, and if God hadn't given us an opportunity to change something, He it says there's no need to change because you've been saved, but you live in that assignment that He has called you. This is my rule for all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at that time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant? Were you a servant? Were you a slave when you were called? So when you were saved, were you a slave? Do not be concerned about it. he said. Like, whoa, hold up. Don't be concerned. I'm a slave. I've been set free now by, by the blood of Jesus. I have this immense freedom in Christ, and I've been saved. And now he's saying, don't worry about my, my being a slave. He says, don't worry about it. Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So that's his word to servants. If you have a chance to be free, then you be free. For he who has called us in the Lord as a servant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when, uh, when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. So as we as we see what the Bible says, this issue of slavery first says that if you're able to be free, talk to these servants, then go be free if you have the opportunity to do so. But if you don't have the opportunity to do so, then you serve in the station that God has called you to be. Go with me to the book of Philemon. I admitted this to my Sunday morning Bible study, and someone encouraged me to apologize to my mother. So, mother, I'm gonna apologize to you. This week, and I was trying to find Philemon, I struggled. I've never struggled hadn't struggled to find a book of the Bible in a long time. And so I had to go through the books of the Bible in my head. Where is Philemon hiding it? It is right after Titus. It is a one-chapter book in the Bible. See, I can't even find it right now. I'm going to get there. Titus, Philemon. And we're not going to read Philemon, although we could probably read it in just a few minutes, but for the sake of time, Philemon is a very interesting book. It also has a lot of parallels to Colossians, because Philemon is about a slave. It is, it is about Paul and this slave named uh, Onesimus, uh, who we're going to see in chapter 4. He's going to show up in our next message in, uh, in Colossians, and he is this uh, he is this servant, he's this bond servant, he's this slave that Paul met while he's in prison. And he is imploring Philemon not to see him any longer as a bond servant. He's not telling him he's, he's got to free him, but he says, here's how I want you to view him. I want you to treat him as a brother. He says specifically in verse 17, this is where I want to turn our attention to, in Philemon 17, so, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, if you have the ability for Paul to talk to you and he said, I want you to receive this person as you received me, and whether it's now or whether you were in the first century, Paul had the most possible respect amongst the churches as he was an apostle and he was planning these churches. So, what. Uh, what Philemon received from that is here is this Onesimus who I used to didn't have much value in when he was a servant before he came to know the Lord and now he is a brother in Christ. So I have to view him not just as a bond servant but as a brother in Christ. And there is so much value in him not because of what he's able to do with his hands but because of who he is. Because of the, the worth that he has because Christ has died for him. So Onesimus was a slave who came to know the Lord and Paul appealed to Philemon to see him as a brother and not just a bondservant. Colossians 3:11 as we said while well ago there is neither slave nor free but Christ is all and in all. The gospel strategy for dismantling the system of slavery is not from the outside in, it is from the inside out. How could you remain a slave, whether for a good master or an evil one? How could you do this? How could you remain in this place that God had saved you? How could you be in it? How could you remain there? Because you were following Christ. How could you possibly do this? As a child, how could you possibly honor your mom and dad whenever they're not honorable? As a wife, how can you... Submit to a husband whenever he's not honorable. As a husband, how can you love a wife whenever she's not very lovable? Because of Christ. So, how can you be a servant and serve in a home? How can you be a slave and serve, period? How can you remain in that station because we're doing so as unto Christ? So as a master, how could you continue to view another human being as property while at the same time seeing them as a brother or sister in Christ? You couldn't. The system would collapse. The system would dismantle. Slavery was and still is because slavery is uh, still alive and well in parts of this world. Slavery was and is still a sinful social construct. It devalues what the Lord has placed an infinite value on those that he has made in his image. It wasn't something that could just simply be done away with. It had to be dealt with at the core, and that is at the heart of man had to be dealt with at the core, at the heart of man. Ultimately, the institution of slavery cannot continue amongst those who are loving God and loving people. As one author says very well, the gospel sows the seeds of dissolution of slavery. And so the gospel, as it came to the heart's Of not just the servants as it came to the hearts of masters, it began this inner working. It planted these seeds of breaking the whole system apart. But while these seeds were growing in the first century, Paul gave clear instruction to servants and masters. The gospel centered servants were to sincerely obey the earthly masters, and the gospel centered servants are to clearly understand who they're serving. And the gospel-centered leaders are to justly and fairly consider others. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for a chance to open your word, to walk through this text, Lord. And in ways and at times it can be a difficult text, Lord, an emotional text. But Lord, your truth is as relevant then as it is now. It is applicable then as it is now. And so I pray by your Holy Spirit today and throughout this week, would we, would we look to your word. Would we make it our aim to honor you as we go about our relationships. Or now as we come, as we continue in our service, Lord, as we sing, as we respond through the, to the preaching of your word, as we come to the communion table in a moment, as we have a chance to give, And as we leave this place, that we respond in faith to you because of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I do pray. Amen.